So welcome everyone. Uh, welcome to UX Indonesia uh, meetup. We organize this meetup every uh, fortnightly. Uh, and uh, my name is Yunisari, and this is also Josh uh, Adibeja Saputa, who will be the facilitators for uh, today's meetup. Uh, so I see a lot of uh, new people coming today. Uh, thank you very much for coming and welcome. Today I'm going to introduce Emil Rampre. He's the CEO of Growth Mechanics, uh, London, UK. Um, he's our friends. He's a he's a brilliant person, and he's going to talk about turn how to turn your call data into product decision. He's a uh, he's a, well. I I told you before. He's CEO of Growth Mechanics, a 100 bootstrap and remote company builders and accelerator program provided. So just a little bit about growth mechanic. Emil will talk about it more if he has time. So basically his company operated and managed 50 programs, including many impact pro programs across 34 countries. And uh, he has mentoring startups across the world. So Emil is a co-active co-founder of the company uh, initiative, including one um, he just recently built called Interviewer. It's a lightweight notation and management tool for qualitative data. So I know Emil for about how many years? About five years. And um, he's been traveling around the world. He lives on his suitcase. He is very, he has a very interesting life. And uh, he will talk more about that maybe. <laughs> and um, but today he's going to talk about something serious. He's going to talk about turning qualitative insight into decision. So how to uh, from strict process into taking creative liberties. Uh, where should the lines be drawn when taking customer insight into product execution? For those who came to the previous meetup, uh, we were talking about uh, how to ask. Uh, Good questions. And uh, some of the questions that um, I, I think I remember Regu, if he's here, is asking how to make this all this data into product decision. And that's what I think hopefully Emil will touch a bit about that. So without further ado, I'll give the time to Emil to talk more about uh, your work. So time is yours now, Emil. Cool. Thank you very much. Um... Salamat pagi. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Emil Lamprecht. Uh, I will try and spend as little time talking about me as possible because that may be interesting if you like travel and stuff, but it doesn't really answer the questions that we have to tackle today. Um, you also have to excuse me. I'm working on two systems today. I have a camera and the call open here, but to do the presentation and everything, I'm going to be kind of looking at this screen a lot. So if you're watching the video, apologies for the flip-flop. Um, I'm going to go ahead and share my screen now so that we can kick off. Uh, Let me know if you can see that. Okay. Great. So, uh, as Amy said, how to turn your qual data into product decisions. Now, realistically, this is alone as a topic is something that I've taught like very large master classes about, right? It's very hard to cover this topic in a lot of breadth and depth in about 30, 40 minutes of chatting. So what I'm really just gonna do is kind of rapidly walk you through some, some real examples from stuff that we've done recently especially for early stage. I don't know how many of you are working on sort of earlier stage discovery stuff versus um, qual data and investigation and feedback in more mature products. I'll kind of talk about the difference in those processes um, in sort of a lightweight way. Um, but we're going to try and just kind of get through some examples so you can see practically what it means to kind of collect and deal with data in a way that has actionable outcomes. Um, this is the way we deal with it. I would argue that there are hundreds of different ways that you could deal with it. I'd also even say that the way we deal with it will change to circumstance. So the process is important um, and it's much more important than the tools or anything else we'll talk about. But the process, just like any product you're working on, is also iterative. So 
keep that in mind. This is not to be seen as as gospel or, or strict rules about how to do this. This is an introduction to a way to do this, um, one way to do this that you could use maybe as an outline for how you might do this with your team or whoever you're working with. Um, who am I? Eunice uh, did a great job of kind of introducing me, though she she said I'm a, a very interesting and, and accomplished person. I just work a lot. That's really the answer. I don't think there's much more to it than that. Um, I've been very lucky to kind of turn my life into something that's travel-based and have built teams all over the world and have helped startups all over the world. Um, I've co-founded actually seven companies, but really five that count. Um, and the main thing is that third bullet point there, which is I really promote business as science um, as a methodology. So it's not about business as art. I think that's um, crock a horse poo. Um, I don't. I don't think business or startups is an art form. I think it's scientific, and people who treat it scientifically tend to be the ones that succeed over and over again instead of just have one win. Um, and kind of ride on that uh, their way forward. So um, I also tend to take myself way too seriously. So if it's getting a bit too heavy today, um, feel free to throw a joke in the chat. Um, and random fun facts. I really like coffee, like to the nerdy level extreme of like four or five different coffee contraptions in my apartment and like making different stuff. Um, and I used to be a juggler. Or whatever that's worth just to make sure that you don't take it too seriously um i also heard uh, all about your session with andrew last week i worked very very closely with andrew muirwood um so those of you who were um in last week's session uh i uh have specifically tried to design this session to escalate from some of what he was saying um and but unlike andrew i'm not an old man um, I actually really like modern stuff and toys, so we'll be talking about tools and toys as well, which I think he sort of blanched on last week. So first question kind of to all of you is what makes this hard? So in, in trying to collect qualitative data and then turn it into action, what comes to mind in terms of why that's difficult? You know, have you struggled with this and, and why have you struggled with this? And like, just take a second, throw something in the chat. I'd love to see, there's 21 people here. So I'd love to see at least 10, 15 responses to that question. So what makes it hard turning qual data into product decisions? Okay, uh, silahkan tulis di sini ya. Uh, apa namanya mengapa susah mengubah kualitas-kualitas uh, data menjadi uh, decision uh, jadi silahkan ditulis sekarang ya waktunya satu menit I trying to <laughs> too much data yep It's amazing how often that comes up. Any other thoughts? Any other thoughts? Let's quantify. Overlapping ideas. I think overlapping ideas, if you if you know how to work with data, is, is probably more of a good thing than a problem. But I, on a stakeholder side, that can be a real issue. Okay, we'll keep moving. But if you have other thoughts about this, keep throwing them in. Um, very important uh, that we're working off of that. And if I'm speaking too fast um, or you don't understand me, um, please throw a signal up or Ines, also feel free to interrupt me and tell me that I'm going too quickly. Um, here are some of the tricky bits that, that we struggle with. So, especially in the case of having too much data, data management in general is a real puppy, right? So collection, knowing what you need, but also what to pay attention to. If you have 10 hour long interviews, right? That's a lot of data. Um, 
and how do you prioritize, right? Do you really try and understand everything that's being said, or do you just focus on a couple core themes, anything that you can find as a pattern? Um, this is always a really tough decision. Um, taking the time to do analysis properly, regardless of that point A decision is also really tough. Um, <laughs> a lot of people tend to, tend to avoid doing analysis and taking the time to do analysis properly. And then recall, so bringing people along for the ride, especially stakeholders who are pushy or um, in a hurry, um, uh, state, stakeholders who don't understand how long it takes to coordinate an interview, set up for an interview, do the interview, analyze the interview, and then analyze it as part of a group of interviews. Um, you can soften the pressure by trying, coming up with ways to kind of involve them in the project as much as possible so that they see how much work it is. That's really important um, to kind of cause it like opening the relief valve a little bit but data management as a whole across all of these themes is really tough um bias awareness um uh Eunice said bias especially when tagging in the chat as well um bias awareness is hard interviewer bias is a thing you all have bias i have bias um everybody has bias whether or not we like it uh, the more you can do to recognize it is uh is so important in this process so but just kind of asking yourself the questions, how am I influencing the outcomes? How am I influencing, you know, the, the data insights coming out? Um, and then the third tricky bit is the process, which is mostly what we're going to talk about today. I think you could probably spend whole long sections on the previous two uh, as well with other people. So today we're going to talk more about examples of tooling, training, um, and how to stick to a process under pressure is also quite important. Uh, I may or may not get a chance to really cover uh, sticking to it under pressure. So, but if we have questions about that, uh, feel free to ask them. So what's important about making product decisions from qual data? I think you, if you work with qual data and your job is doing that as a researcher, you probably have some answers to this. For us, uh, what's most important about making decisions based on qualitative data is the obvious, solving customer user problems. I think that should be kind of <laughs> the key priority for, for most uses of qual in business, but for us, it's certainly a, a number one. Um, number two is priority setting. Um, and this actually confuses a lot of people because uh, researchers who struggle to turn qual into decisions actually find that it confuses priority, but that mostly has to do with the process. So again, what we're gonna talk about today are what are methods to taking the qual information you have and having it help you choose what is a priority versus not. And then the other great thing about qual data and using it uh, for product decisions is that you're bypassing internal politics. You are externalizing the decision from the group of stakeholders involved. And that's very important, right? If all of these people tell you that they need X, you can debate all you want on how to solve X, but it doesn't change the fact that you're all trying to solve X. Whereas without the qual data saying that, you might have one, you know, the CEO saying we need to solve Y and the CTO saying we need to solve X and you as the researcher think, no, we actually need to solve N um, and you're all gonna debate about it internally and, and opinionate about it. Whereas if you have data that is qualifying a need, you can bypass all of that by saying, actually, we all need to just work on solving whatever this one problem is. So that's, uh, especially when we're working with um, like new products or new teams that have a lot of people involved, uh, it's very, very important to, to externalize those decisions with qualitative data. Um, and then just a quick note about discovery versus maturity. What I mean by this is discovery is more starting a startup or starting a new product, even at a corporate level, if you're working on something that's completely new and doesn't have a baseline, um, that's more discovery, that's much more raw versus maturity, which is you maybe have an MVP or you have a product or you have a service and you're researching around the existing solution, whatever that might be. Um, earlier in the product development journey, so, you know, really on the startup end, the, the process is a little bit less important. So, you know, you don't have to be as rigid and as rigorous through the process in the early early days, 
However, it sets the baseline for later. So the more rigorous you are early in the product journey, the more rigorous and the easier it will be to be rigorous in the later part of the development journey and therefore the research journey. Um, rigor and patience are, are key to ensuring uh, remains customer focused, right? Like if you keep doing research, but it's kind of always from the hip and ad hoc, uh, it's never really going to, to drive sort of a customer or, you know, if you're working in medical, a patient perspective into the product. Um, just reading uh, the question here, since many of the companies are into quantitative instead of qualitative, do you think they can bypass internal politics with quantitative data only? I think you can. I don't think it's smart <laughs> to answer the question in the chat. Um, I think, look, quantitative and qualitative are easiest defined as what happened versus why it happened. So if you're confused about the value of qualitative data, which is fair because sometimes it's really hard to see it, quantitative will tell you what's happening. So whether it's analytics or hot jar or usability hub or any of these um, or surveys, um, it'll it'll give you a what. Um, but it, it won't help you explain why that's the way it is. And without understanding why, it's very difficult to establish any sort of root form of empathy with any stakeholder type, not just a customer or user. Same goes for internal surveys within a large corporation. Um, you can understand what's going on within the workforce of 10,000 people because they answered X way, um, but you don't necessarily know why if you haven't gone and asked that question. And why is something that you can't really do in a survey? Um, you have to have a conversation with someone. And so qualitative helps you expand um, and structure empathy but also therefore be able to reflect on a genuine problem as opposed to presuming why the problem exists. So the biggest failures that I see in use of quantitative data are, here's what's happening. I have a way to solve it. Oh, I have a way to solve it. Oh, I have a way to solve it. Well, let's all debate which way we should solve it and then try that as opposed to going and asking why the problem, why the problem exists in the first place. Um, and often realizing that the root of that problem is something completely different than the assumption of the people reading the content. I hope that makes sense. That was a little bit of a complicated answer, but. Um, so what we're doing today, um, our agenda for the next, let's say 30 minutes as opposed to 45, we're gonna walk through an example of a process. Um, everyone has their own, by the way. So researchers are notorious for all having their own processes about for everything. So I'm not here to impede on that. I'm just saying this is how we do it um, or some examples of how we do it. Um, two, introduction to tooling that can help. So I'm gonna walk through the example process by going through the tools and different ways in which we use them. So these are tools that help us. There are lots of tools out there. Um, and then we'll do some QA at the end uh, about processes and tools, whatever you like to ask, feel free to ask. Um, I'm not an old man like Andrew, so I love my tools. I love using new stuff. Um, however, my fear when showing any tool to anybody, especially in sessions like this, is that you will then trust the tool to give you the answer. And it's not about the tool. The tool is just a, a, a way of organizing your thoughts or way of organizing data, but the process has to be driven by you, not the tool. You have to know what you want and then pick the tool that best solves that problem for you, okay? Not the other way around. Don't just pick a tool and then let it kind of tell you how it should be done. How are you going to explain and know that your qualitative data is scientifically just? Is qualitative data like qualitatively scientifically justified or rigorous? Um, we'll, we'll talk about that actually. Um, but bring that question back if you don't feel like I answer it by the end of this session. <laughs> um, I basically just said this, trust the tools, uh, trust the process, not the tools. Um, lay out the process that makes sense to you and then iterate as needed. All right, so now we're gonna start switching to, to tools. So there's gonna be a lot of crossover with last week's session, but I'm gonna kind of glaze over it. So I'm just gonna talk about steps, right? And this is gonna be a little bit ad hoc um there's maybe three or four tools that we're going to look at for
or different parts of decision making. Um, I'm not going to talk about setting up your hypotheses. I'm not going to talk about um, designing your scripts or anything like that. Let's assume that you already know who you're going to interview and assume that you already have a discussion guide or a script you're going to use. Um, we can even assume that maybe you've already started interviewing people. Okay. But from there, the question is, how do you store or organize data in a way that makes it useful later on? Right? Because analysis is going, the, the less structured your data collection is, the harder it is going to be to do analysis. And there's, there's sort of the ethnographic end of research, which says, well, you should have no analysis structure when you start your research, because then you're immediately biasing your research. But let's be fair here. If you're a good researcher, you have started the project by doing a whole lot of desk research, by talking to all the stakeholders involved, by designing the hypotheses of what you want to test um, or, or learn. And you've already structured your analysis in that case, if you've gone that far. The only way you could be less structured than that is being truly ethnographic and just having an open conversation with a series of people until you start to see a pattern. But you, in that situation, you would have no idea what you're looking for, right? So from a business perspective, you kind of need to know what you're looking for. You're looking for an answer to some question, some assumption, some open-ended issue. Um, so organizing that data as you collect it makes sense because that allows you to then use it to answer that question. So let's assume that we're gonna do that. So there's a couple tools that we use um, right at the beginning, right? So for instance, Eunice introduced this earlier. This is actually one of our growth mechanics companies. We designed it for us. <laughs> we needed it as researchers because we didn't have a tool that could do this for us. So we went ahead and designed it, which was we wanted a tool that we could record the interviews with that would allow us to pre-structure data, okay? So that we don't have to go through the whole interview a whole nother time or several more times to structure the data. So what we did was we basically created a note-taking app, right? So this isn't going to record this call, so um, but I'm just going to hit record so it's running. Now, you can do this in a spreadsheet the way Andrew does. You can do this, you know, in if you're really good at taking notes in a Google Doc, you can do this in a Google Doc. But what was important to us was being able to take notes that were tied to what the person actually said. Okay, so this note is now tied to when I said that. And we wanted to be able to do the same with things like when we ask a question or when we heard a particularly juicy insight or whatever it might be, right? What's important about this as a concept is whether or not you use this tool or a spreadsheet, you need to make sure that your data is falling into several pre-structures. So one structure is how do you go back and find a piece of recording uh, whether that be a piece of audio or a piece of video from the interview. And the reason that's important is because no matter how many notes or transcripts or headlines you might make, if you can't go back and hear what the person actually said when you need to, that data might as well not exist. So one of the most important answers to the question we got before, how do you make sure your qualitative data is scientifically rigorous or justified is it's not so much important that it's scientifically justified to the stakeholders as it is real. And snippets of audio, real examples of what people said are as if not more important than the scientific rigor. When it comes to the stakeholders, when it comes to your methodology, how you choose to be rigorous is your own, right? And that might be playing with percentages in terms of what kind of patterns do you need to see versus not, but it also depends on the type of study. So if you're doing a feedback study, you'll see patterns that are pretty quantifiable and therefore pretty easy to justify. If you're doing a discovery research project, it's less about the scientific rigor of the outcomes and more about whether or not 
your method of investigation discovered the things that you were looking for, discovered either patterns or ideas or problems that weren't previously being discussed. So it, discovery versus feedback versus behavioral, these study types will all have different kind of needs in, in data structure and rigor. Um, so again, regardless of the tool, you need to be able to structure your notes, right? And you need to have some clear way of doing that. Structured notes is key. Um, now, a natural part of finishing an interview that Andrew spoke about last week is headlining. Now, if you're working in like Google Docs or spreadsheets, you can headline in that. But I actually am going to jump straight to another tool, which is where we do our headlining after we finish an interview which is Mural. I don't know if any of you have heard of Mural. Mural is basically an open whiteboard tool. And we use it to effectively do all of the hard <laughs> post-it work that you would do in person with a group. But since we're an entirely remote organization and always have been, obviously we're not going to get together every time we do a research study. So instead, we tend to do it in massive Mural boards like this. Now, how much of the process you bring into Mural versus not is up to you. This is an example of when we were designing Interviewer. So when we did, were designing Interview, before we built it, we had a series of Google Sheets that we basically created this structure in so that our notes were structured and that they were structured by script questions and tags and keywords. And so that we could find patterns easily from that data. And then when we headlined, we headlined out into the mural board, right? So every time we finished an interview, we would just bring and just start typing notes of headlines, right? Another example of that is here. This is a study that's currently in process. And so as these interviews with these participants are done, um, the interviewer comes back in after the interview and puts down headlines from that person. So it looked like this originally. And that just meant that all the when we were ready to analyze that data, that data was already all here. It wasn't organized this way. It was just organized in columns like this, but it was all here. And then we started doing affinity mapping, right? And if you've been working with qualitative before, whether you're doing with headlines or with all of your notes, that's up to you. Depends on the type of study. But affinity mapping is a fairly natural process in research. And so we affinity mapped using uh, in this case, particular personas, because we were in discovery mode. So we were kind, kind of trying to distinguish what were the different use case situations and what were the differences in those use cases between the people that we interviewed. Um, and we had had a hypothesis persona to begin with, which was the user researcher as a core, uh, as a core persona, but it branched very quickly. Even just in interviewing these people, it branched into other use cases. And then we had general observations and such and, and various tools and things that came up, right? And then once we kind of finished this initial analysis of, of all of the interviews, we started talking about, okay, how does this influence decisions in a product, right? How does this determine what we need to do? So two things then came out of this data. One was we reanalyzed all the data to look specifically for the user journey. So what were the complete steps of process in the user journey? So user journey is often something that you build before a study as a hypothesis and then tweak. Because this was a discovery study, we built it afterwards. We assumed that we didn't know what the process was so that we could get it from interviews and then analyze it out into this. So this is what the journey became through the interviews. And then hidden in all of this data are a series of problems, right? So a lot of the, the affinities in each of these bubbles were the problems experienced by each of these affinities. That's really what we were looking for in the study. And so the feature brainstorm was actually in response to that. So, okay, now that we know what the problems are, what are the possible ways that we could solve all of those problems? And thus you get sort of First, a random scattering brainstorm of feature ideas, and then they start to consolidate into little groups, and then they start to take priority. You start to say, okay, which of these concepts solves the most problems for a particular persona? Well, this solves 
the most problems in one go for particularly the user researcher. So since that was our primary hypothesis to begin with and was justified by the researcher, by the by our research, then this is probably going to be a priority feature, right? And this is this is a very rapid scrappy process, right? I'm showing you like the quick burn way to get through this, right? This is at the very early stages of discovery for something fresh and new. Um, and I want to make it clear that usually at that stage, that's enough. You don't have to make it more complicated than this. <laughs> you can make it a lot more complicated than this, but you don't necessarily have to because obviously once you've done one study and you've made some initial hypotheses about how to solve the problems you discovered, the first thing you're going to go do is research again, is go say, okay, assuming that this is now our priority for this persona, we're going to go bring this as an offer to that persona as part of a test or as part of a research study and see how they react to it. And maybe you do it with a prototype. Maybe you do it just still as qualitative. Either way, it's qualitative, but you know, maybe you do it with a prototype or without, maybe you do it using an existing tool that maybe does this already to see how they react to it. Maybe you do it half with people you already interviewed sort of as a follow-up and half with people who you haven't interviewed yet. But the natural escalation of sort of discovery processes is more discovery, right? You want to escalate that to the point where the decision sort of funnels and consolidates into like, this is now what needs to be done. Um, and the rigor is in being able to draw the line, right? So the rigor is not in the scientific depth and documentation. It's in being able to clearly draw the line of escalation. We had hypothesis A. We did X interviews. X interviews showed us that this was the journey. And in that journey were several key areas of problems. We then brainstormed how to solve those problems. And then we went based on what we thought was the best possible solution. We went and researched again to see if it did solve those problems. In that second batch of research, it confirmed that this will solve those problems. Therefore, that is the action. Decision made. <laughs> now, obviously that took a month and a half and a bunch of people working on different things and it's always heavier and more complicated than it sounds, especially to get this much data organized, both visually and, and in one's head. But people tend to, to overqualify the scientific need. The scientific rigor comes from the rigor of the process, the ability to draw the line, not with your opinion, but with the data presented. That you've you know that you've collected and therefore presented um that's what's the most important from the discovery standpoint now before i move on to more rigorous forms of like feedback collection data and how to organize that into features are there any big burning questions did this make sense or did it not make sense <laughs> i mean you make it sounds very simple but i don't know what does the people think here? So, uh, bagi teman-teman yang ingin bertanya, uh, mas sebelum uh, Pak Emil akan menjelaskan lebih lanjut yang lebih kompleks, silakan tanya sekarang. Boleh tanya dalam bahasa Indonesia juga. So, uh, if you have any question, uh, yeah, just ask now before it is too late because he's going to talk more complicated stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the clinchers is that, you know, I make it sound very easy, mostly because nothing beats the experience of doing this many, many times and trying many, many frameworks. So the process is what's important, which is what we just talked through, right? In sort of rough, a rough approximation of process or a process. But there are 20 different tools and 20 different frameworks that you could use to fill each of those five steps, right? It's interesting. I, it really needs concrete observation and interviews. 
Yes, yeah, and... but if your interviews are crap, then this isn't going to work anyway. You have to be good at interviewing as a prerequisite. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's a question here. What is the difference between brainstorming and problem discovery? Why does uh, problem discovery have many circles? So problem discovery, this was the way of organizing the data. And this was the feature brainstorm was a, an actual brainstorm, right? So all of these post-its, well, specifically the yellow post-its in this case, were headlines that were taken from debriefs of interviews, right? So when we finished an interview here, we came into Mural and then, you know, wrote a bunch of observational headlines. So what were the key themes that stuck out from that interview? And we're usually just taking specific notes from this, right? So if we noted something as important, then that's probably going to become a headline here. And in fact, within Interviewer, you can actually now export all of your notes and organize them and filter them um, because they all have automatic categorization in the, in the export. And then you can just copy paste the cells of that export into this as your headlines if you want to do it really quick without having to create new material here. The reason they ended up in these bubbles was because we had to organize all of those headlines, right? There's a lot here. There's a lot of different data types, right? There's all the kind of observational headlines. There's the general trends headlines. Um, there's the stakeholder uh, data. And so we needed to organize that. So we looked for affinities where, what tied the knot between different user types or different use case types. And then how could we put those into kind of groups that made sense. And those academic interviewers, um, this is patient researchers, so specifically medical researchers, uh, user researchers, and then journalists who also obviously do quite a lot of qualitative data collection and sorting. Um, I think what's missing here potentially is that we, uh, uh, we, we so I think originally we had labeled each of these with the participant that it was coming from to make sure that we didn't have like one affinity that was just one user because <laughs> that's a risk but we then relabeled them with the persona it looks like and we didn't save the original labels so you can't see that here but originally these would have been labeled with which interview they came from and then the brainstorm was literally a brainstorm okay here are the problems for you know each persona let's just brainstorm solutions for that persona, uh, for, for each of those problems and see what we can find. Um, see if we can find one that solves many of the problems at once, for instance. That's kind of the challenge of the brainstorm. Um, how many users do you usually include per circle? Um, depends on the number of users you're interviewing. Um, so the question is how many how many users kind of had to exist in a persona to justify the persona. Um, in this case, we did, I think we did 13 interviews for this first stage. And so we wanted to see patterns that were consistent, right? So the users were very mixed, um, different range of skills and expertise, um, some range in profession, though mostly focused around user researchers. Um, for a pattern to really be counted as a pattern, we wanted to see at least three, four, five, uh, you know, uh, participants end up in the same bubble. Otherwise that bubble wasn't really real. And we, we, you know, I make it sound easy because I'm presenting the end result, but we had at some point like seven bubbles <laughs> and we had to keep reconsolidating. Right. Um, so there were some other examples we had like customer service at some point because there was a lot of customer service use cases for collecting qualitative um and we had students and professors as two separate but that didn't really make sense in the end so we just kind of pulled that together um so it's you know you start wide and you kind of keep knocking it down but for a bubble to be justified it needs to have some significant number of participants to really make sense how do you brainstorm solution for different persona? Is it one fit all solution or did you do it contextually? Um, that's a great question. 
what we really did, if I'm honest with you, is we finished mapping the affinities of each of these. And then in this case, we asked ourselves, okay, we originally set out to validate the user researcher persona. Have we done that? Do we feel like, even if the other personas are valid or not, do we feel like we validated the persona that we set out to validate? Um, to which the response from the participating researchers was, yes, um, there's enough data, enough consistency and pattern to say that clearly there is a gap here. Um, clearly the journey is fragmented. Therefore, yes, there is, there are problems here. There are needs here. Whether or not you can build a solution, we don't know, but we know there are problems here. One of the biggest indicators is what I said at the beginning of this talk, that every researcher has their own way of solving a problem. When you see no consolidation of solution, that means that everybody has the same problem. They might not all see it as a problem, which is important. They may not perceive the problem, but they all experience it because they've all had to create their own solution. So that was very apparent. And so when we did the brainstorm, in this case, we specifically did the brainstorm for the target persona. And then as part of a second round of qualification, we said, does this also solve problems for the other personas or not? In some cases they do, in some cases they don't, but it was kind of an open question to say, okay, if this solves the core problem for the core persona, does it also solve the problem for the others? To which, Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no. So like timestamping notes in the way that we do and mapping to the audio actually solves the problem for all four personas. But the features that come after that do not. The features that come after that maybe solve it for the actual researchers, but not the journalist, for instance. Um, but that comes into prioritization discussion. That's the next step. Um, next question. Just curious, as you're doing research to build a product that helps interviewer sessions, um, did you use the research process for this product as data too? That must be an immense amount of data. Did you do a lot of back and forth in researching? Example, maybe you thought that timestamp notes is a good feature, and then when you tested it qualitatively, you encountered more problems that might be more urgent to be solved during that test. Uh, excellent question, and very well put. And yes, is the simple answer. Um, I, the question implies actually something philosophical, which is, is qualitative ever done? <laughs> to which the answer is no, because you can never just completely solve all the problems of everyone in the world, right? There's, there's at no point that everything is solved and something can always be better for this person versus that person versus another person. So it depends very much on the motivations of what you're doing and why. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier in this process, uh, you know, we went through this, we went through the first round of research. We did the affinity mapping and the journey. We then did the brainstorm. We then decided that this was the biggest win within that brainstorm. And so then we went and researched this. And then when we researched this, part of what we were researching was not only whether or not to solve the problem, but what else needed to be there for it to solve it enough, if that makes sense. Right? So if everyone's got their own process, uh, the perceived cost of changing that process is very high. And this is where you start looking at like the psychological indicators, right? So you have to, you have to use some of the academic brain here. What are, what are patterns in behavioral psychology that would affect people who have built their own process? Well, if they've built their own process, they're defensive of it. <laughs> so if you're going to have them change their process, you have to solve the problem enough that it's worth it to them. And so the question was, is this worth it? Is this enough? To which the answer, as per the question assumes, the answer was no, it is not enough. <laughs> it's definitely not enough. It's a good starting point though, but it's not enough. There are going to be other things that need to be here. And those other things, actually many of them were not in this initial brainstorm. They were found later and brought into the next stage of prioritization, which I'm going to walk through in a second. So there's research is iterative in so much that its intention is to be iterative. You're intentionally researching and re-researching and diving deeper and deeper to be able to then iterate and improve the subject you're researching. 
or the subject for your research. And as a result, it should never be done, right? This is the often the issue with projects, unless you're really used to it, unless you're someone like Andrew from last week, who's really good at pre-structuring data for outcomes so that he knows that no matter what he finds, even if it's something he doesn't expect, it will fit into an analysis framework that he's built. Um, it, it, it's very hard to do one-off projects without being able to do that. And that takes a lot of experience. It takes a lot of repetition. It takes, you know, Andrew's done thousands of these projects. He's very experienced. So you have to go through it over and over and over again until you find those kind of stacking methods of making data useful and useful and more and more concise um, and getting better and better at asking questions so that it only takes one interview to get all the way through as opposed to early on in your research career where it might take one or two or three re interviews to get the same distance. Um, yeah, is that, I hope that answered it. That was maybe a very complicated answer, but I hope that answered your question. Um, what, uh, why are there four diverse personas from young to older adults and different needs and pay points? How do you come to make a decision? Oh, what if there are, what if the personas are very diverse? Um, that's kind of a strategist question more than a researcher question. Um, it kind of comes down to fundamentally deciding what the point of the business is and whose problem you're trying to solve right so if if all four personas have distinct problems um that could potentially have solutions that to be developed it's the you as a team or the strategist or you know the founders whatever the situation may be it's up to them to decide which one they want to solve um which is most important to them which they feel Will make the most money or make the most impact um if willingness to pay is a question so you have four personas with diverse use cases and diverse problems um, within one space um and it's unclear who will pay uh then you may need to start looking at them as okay is this a user or a customer and if it's a customer how do we how do we justify or validate their willingness to pay because otherwise there's no business right so from a business perspective, you're always looking for, for the money. Um, from an impact perspective or a strategist perspective, you're always looking for um, the most, like the largest beneficial outcome to providing a solution. Uh, Teresa, have you ever experienced that some data from an interview doesn't really have an extreme gap? Um, between one pattern and the other. Example, six people say A, seven, say B, but it's important variable. What do you choose or do you skip that variable? Nothing is ever binary. Um, it's easy to make things binary, right? Because you're asking questions where people do or they don't. But if you are, if there's not a clear persona difference or segmentation difference between do and don't, and, and there probably is, so, Answer number one is dig deeper into the differentiation between people who said no versus yes. What what fundamentally makes them separate? If there really isn't one, then you're probably looking at a problem that doesn't matter enough, right? So again, you have to look, you have to put on the academic hat here. So from a human psychology standpoint, if it doesn't matter to a person, to say yes or no enough that there is a differentiating nature between those two people, they're probably the same person and the problem just isn't really a problem. Or at least not enough of one that it makes a, a big difference. This is often the issue with consumer brands, right? So so anything that's um, consumerism, fashion, things like this. Um, it's very hard to do user research for those industries because it doesn't really matter. It's all about, um, kind of in-moment perception. Um, the only caveat I'll add is third party. So if you can't segment people who are saying yes and no in equal power because they're the same person, then stop asking about them. Ask about the people around them. Because often the difference between yes and no 
will actually be the segmentation of their social circle instead of them as individual people. And that as research, that's really complicated and quite difficult um, because your, your map is going to look about eight times more complicated than this one. <laughs> um, hope that answered your question. Um, I'll answer one more question since it's here and then I'll quickly run through some other tooling examples, right? Because I, I think there's more value here for you guys to take away. Um, Oh, it's not a question. Okay. Yes. Sometimes it feels like walking in circles. Yes, it does. <laughs> and when it does, you just have to go ask more questions and that adds more data. And then you're walking in another circle. Um, okay. So just a really quick review, right? So if you're just doing interview audio and taking notes and want your notes to be structured in a way that you can then export and use them more easily, I recommend using interviewer or Google sheets or whatever you want. You know, you can be an old man like Andrew, or you can be a someone younger and heifer like me up to you. Um, I recommend using a visual tool. So if you're all in person, do this in real life on a wall. If you're working remote, which many of you are indefinitely doing uh, during COVID, um, get really good at tools like Mural um, and be aware that Mural has a lot of helpful stuff, right? If you're not sure what framework to use, go see what frameworks they have. See if you can find something that fits the logic that helps you accomplish whatever goal you're looking to to achieve by sorting the data, right? So collect your data, bring your data into a visual format so that you can organize it effectively. Um, now, if you're doing video or user uh, testing data and it's much more complicated and you need a more comprehensive uh, repo, uh, I recommend a tool called Dovetail App. Uh, this is a, a data repository, this is not to record data in, this is to kind of bring and hold data in and then maybe analyze it retroactively, right? So if you're recording data with the intention to analyze it later, you can then bring it into a place like Dovetail, right? And you can have all your videos and then you can go through each video and you can tag, you know, either make notes and tag notes or produce a transcript and tag the transcript. Um, this allows you to quantify large pools of data more aggressively um, I find that people tend to lean too heavily on this. You still need to go through an actual kind of synthesis process. You can't just rely on like the number of times this was mentioned versus that, like that's not good enough because you've basically gone through all the work of doing interviews, which are about discovering why something happens to then just say, oh, well, this happened during those interviews kind of defeats the whole purpose of interviews. You might as well have sent a survey. So tagging, whether you're doing it here or in dovetail should be indicators of areas to then investigate, right? To then headline, to then look at quotes from, to then bring into charts like this and try and analyze what are the actual problems that were experienced. Okay. So this is great for those of you that, need to be able to quantify certain things, but please don't rely on this because you might as well not do interviews if you're just going to rely on this. Um, but one of the questions that comes up a lot is like, especially if you have a more mature product and you're getting a lot of feedback, okay? And you've got feedback that's implying, okay, maybe all of these features, right? So you've done 10, 15 feedback interviews and you've got maybe 10, 15 features that have come out of it. And maybe some of them have been mentioned by multiple people and some of them not, but they're all important, good ideas, right? Question is, what do you do with this? How do you decide how to prioritize this? Um, if you're a small team working on a startup, you can probably do a lot of that by instinct. As long as it's coming from the users, you can probably by instinct kind of say, this is more important than that is, or that's more important than that is. However, if that's not the case, or you're afraid of your own bias in influencing that, we use uh, a pie framework for making these decisions and organizing data. Um, and what a pie framework is, is basically a qualitative scoring mechanism. So pie stands for potential, importance, and ease. Um, each has a one to five rating scale. And this is for you and your team 
to fill out and debate, right? So I, there's a lot of information here that you can fill out, right? So you can give a category, let's say team collaboration is a daily use feature. You can give it a, um, you know, description of some kind. But really what I want to do is I want to say, okay, team collaboration relative to all other features on this list, team collaboration, what is its potential? And by potential, I mean, what is its potential to solve a customer problem? Is it, is it going to solve a huge problem? Is it a five? Is it like a massive problem that a lot of users are feeling? Or is it like a nice to have thing where people would really like it, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not actually going to solve their problem. Let's say in our case for interviewer, uh, team collaboration is, is a five. It's actually super important. It's we're rolling it out as a feature this month. <laughs> That's how important it is. Um, so team collaboration is a five for potential. What about importance? Now importance is different. Importance is perception. So you could also change this to, to like impact perception and ease, but potential importance. So importance is perception. So, but from the customer perspective, so whether or not it actually solves their problem, how important is it to the customer to see that it's there? How much should they talk about it? How much do they think it will help them, whether or not it actually will? Um, and if it does, if it will actually help them and they think it actually helps them, then that's like, that's the ultimate, right? That's a five. Um, if they think it will help them a lot, but it won't actually, then that's maybe in the middle. And if they don't think it will help them and it won't help them, then that's low. Um, in this case, team collaboration is pretty high. They perceive it as pretty important. It will solve a bunch of their problems. It's not quite a five. It's not the biggest solution they need um, or perceive, but it's they, they see it as quite important. Um, and then ease is the internal one. Ease is how easy is it for us to build team collaboration into the tool? Um, luckily, and by the way, five is easier and one is not easy, right? Score is escalating, not de-escalating. Um, fortunately, because our backend team is amazing, they set up team collaboration when they built the backend. So actually it only took them about a day and a half to build all the team collaboration features. Um, so it's very easy, right? So now you have a score. Score is currently 14, but I'm now going to go through that same process for each of these, right? So let's just pick some random numbers here. And as you go through, as you have more and more features and you have more and more ideas on how to solve things, um, you're going to have to go back and, and deal with these scores relatively, right? You're going to have to think about them as, oh, is it really more important? Is, you know, is team collaboration really more important than video support? Or maybe have I skewed these scores a bit? Um, but debate it as a team, right? You should never be doing this alone, really. Um, and ultimately, what you'll end up with is, and I kind of did it naturally in this right way, but um, is a list of scores that you can then organize. And this becomes your roadmap. So from top to bottom, your priority list. And then your roadmap more realistically is how they fall into this, right? So let's say, uh, where's the status column? I've moved it. Oh, here we go. So I'm using Airtable for this, which is this tool. Um, because it looks pretty, but you can do the same thing in a spreadsheet, an Excel sheet or a Google sheet. Airtable is free. So, you know, at least to an extent. So for something like this, you can use Airtable as well. Um, the reason I like to use Airtable is because you can also create these other views. So from the same data, so this is the table, I can create a Kanban that then becomes the, the project management roadmap for this, right? So we know team collaboration scored the highest. I've even got it organized in here you know, correctly. So I'm going to move it to brief because now whoever's responsible for writing the brief, that's next up. And as this progresses, maybe this one chases it and maybe this goes into that. And if you have enough team, you know, to support the process, you do 
go along. If you have a project management software already, you can do the same in your project management software. In our project man management software, we actually have a table view for the roadmap like this. Um, and that's pretty much all I'm going to say about that because I believe we're way over time already. Um, and I want to make sure that if you have follow-up questions, we can do it. But I hope this is helpful in terms of elaboration of, of a bit of a process, right? Like if you were looking for something clean, clearly this isn't it, right? There's, it's always dirty. Qualitative is always dirty <laughs> and it kind of should be. You need to be able to deal with the information in chunks and fluidly. What's important is that you, you make sure from a rigor standpoint, um, but also just in avoiding your own bias standpoint, that you can always tie the knot between where data ended up and the decision and where it came from, right? So what, what you and your stakeholders need to be able to see is this is the decision because it makes sense and we investigated it and either it was prioritized like this or we were in a discovery stage and our hypothesis was that this would solve the most problems. We went out to validate that in the second round of research and validated that. Either way, that's fine as long as you can then say, and that data came from this, and then that came from this, and then that is attached to these four interviews, and here are four quotes um, you know, from those interviews about that thing, right? That's the most important bit. Um, how you get there, again, everyone has a different process. We use a different process based on the type of study. Everyone can use different tools. The tools are not important as long as they assist your process. That is the most important thing. Um, but these are the tools that we use. So again, interviewer, we use Mural a lot. Uh, Dovetail for like complex video or user testing analysis um, or mixed, mixed data analysis. Um, and then Airtable for prioritization. Uh, again, you could use a spreadsheet um, and then we use Favro as our project management software, but you know, any project management software will do as long as you can clearly say, this is the action, that action came from here. And with that, that's the list that I talked about today. We'll send around this deck so that you can all have this list. Um, and now in the closing overtime moments, happy to ask questions. I hope this was helpful. I know that's a ton of like abstract information, a very short period of time, but I hope that was helpful. Um, how long did you and the team come out um, the interview analysis and circle charts as shown in the mural map? How big is the team? What are the roles? How do you come to the decision? Um, so the team is six people or was six people at that time. Um, Interviews were run by two people. All six were involved in all of the process except the actual interviews, though sometimes they would shadow an interview. Um, and uh, the headlining, obviously. If, if, the, if someone shadowed an interview, then that person would also headline, but whoever conducted the interview, whoever was present in the interview would do the headlining. Um, as a way to like shortcut the process. If we had enough time for researchers and then analyzers, analyzers would then do the headlining instead of the bias of the interviewer. Um, the mural we did, I mean, depends on which section. Uh, we did the headline, we basically did all of this in one session, a couple hours. And then we did the feature brainstorm and deciding what the next stage of research was um, in a couple hours. And we, we did it all together. Uh, actually, this was pretty short. This was maybe an hour to then make the decision that this is what we were going to investigate based on this. And then uh, the people who did the interviews created a draft of the journey and story solution based on this. Uh, and then we had another session, a third session, um, where everyone just kind of, we went through this together. We asked hard questions. We came up with some new hypotheses that fell into the second stage of research. Um, yeah. 
And then the second stage of research, which was really looking more specifically at how the solution should be constructed. Um, we, well, there's a separate mural for that, but it's much simpler. It was basically just kind of assumption and hypothesis grid and then headlines and the affinity mapping of that. And it's, it's much more crude and a little less apparent, like a little less exciting to look at. Um, but it was really just three stages and that was done just by the researchers. Um, so of the team of six, two and a half people have been responsible for the research. All in all, the whole process, including the research, took us about three, four weeks working on it at, uh, you know, maybe 20% effort or 10% effort. Any other questions? Well, I think that is a, uh, the last question we have on the chat. Um, but uh, we are running a bit over time. Uh, I think you did an amazing job, like uh, trying to squeeze maybe <laughs> two months of work, <laughs> uh, two months of course into like a one hour less than <laughs> talk. So yeah. it is really good. And um, yeah, I believe that uh, uh, at least like uh, uh, everyone like uh, get something uh, they can take away. It's um, I realized that it is a uh, uh, qualitative. It's uh, something that is sometimes like uh, people can take it so lightly and without any, uh, uh, you know, like a real result or sometimes like uh, they make it so complicated. Um, so is this like a, always like a juggling between two holes, like a make it too complicated and make it too, so yeah. oversimplified things. Um, yeah, but this is like, a, this is brilliant. I mean, like uh, what you, talk to us today and um, of course this is not an easy thing that you can just master in one time and as you said it is a, a long process and um, it's a it's a fluid we need to be really uh, what is it flexible dirty process going back and forth so so yeah so much to learn today tonight and I believe everyone learned something from what we have discussed today so thank you emil uh for your talk to tonight well thank you so much everyone for coming tonight and uh, thank you emil for sharing with us and uh, hopefully people can learn something um and uh, if you want to learn more uh, come to meetup or come to training or come to like uh, any activities that we are doing uh all right so good night everyone i hope you have a really nice evening and a good day or enjoy the rest of your day email thanks thanks very thank much you, thank everyone i hope it was helpful thanks okay thank you bye bye everyone thank you thank you thank you, thank you emil okay bye bye